All right, Jesse, last week was unhinged. I did not expect what you gave us. What's the story this time around? A missing home healthcare worker involved in the BDSM lifestyle leads authorities to uncovering a dangerous serial killer who had been operating for decades. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about ecstasy, agony, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show, unless you think we sound like phone sex operators, in which case, sign on to the Patreon. <laughs> I was going to say, or, yeah. if that's what you want, you're welcome. <laughs> also, today I sound like a congested sex phone worker, which is a whole new niche, a whole new niche. There's probably a kink for this. We don't know. I always like to say there's a lid for every pot. And uh, if you guys don't know, <laughs> that's referring to a recent review, which I have to say thank you for that because it gave us and I think a lot of our followers a really good chuckle. Oh, it gave a lot of good chuckles and I think we got a lot of inspiration from it. <laughs> yes, we did. Well, speaking of Patreon, <laughs> if you want some more content from our sexy voices, you can sign up on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. This week, as always, we are so excited to shout out an amazing new set of patrons. Amy H., Michelle L., and Melissa W., Jennifer B., and Brandy M., welcome all. So we are doing something a little bit different this week, but I would like to jump into the intro before we even get into it. How about that, Andy? That sounds great. The 1990s ushered in the dawn of the internet. And it is no exaggeration to say that it changed the course of modern civilization. Technological enthusiasts with optimism marveled at the ability to deliver information instantly, to join together similar-minded folks from across the globe. It was boundless, full of possibilities, and made millions of people feel somehow less alone. If you were a fan of a band or a movie star or a genre of books, let's say, or perhaps in my case, Newsies era Christian Bale fan groups. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's what I used the computer lab for in seventh grade. You could find your people. You could find people online that shared your particular interests. You could find love. You could start chatting. And... Well, some of us were using the computer lab or, you know, that computer that was like in your friend's dad's den that you all crowded into in like a vestibule to speak on AIM. Some of us were using it for that, but others of us were using it for kinkier purposes. In summer of 1996, a Canadian mother in her late 20s named Laura Remington 
met a vivacious young Michigan woman named Suzette Troughton online in a BDSM fantasy role play chat room. So we have discussed BDSM on many episodes before, but just in case this is your first time, the overlapping abbreviation for bondage and dominance, dominance and submission, and sadism and masochism. Generally, I think now in the public consciousness, it's thought of kind of as a 50 shades of gray consensual sex play for the most part. Yeah, they definitely like commercialized it. Yes, that's like the commercial idea of what BDSM is. But it can be a lot more than that. It can also be a lifestyle. Usually, whether it's about sex or whether it's a choice of a lifestyle that you want to live, there's generally rules. There's rules and a lot of consent. It is a practice in which you will sit down with your partner and decide ahead of time what things are going to be allowed and what things are off the table, there's safe words, et cetera, et cetera. It is a practice that to this day is probably still considered a little bit taboo, even with the Fifty Shades of Grey stuff going. However, back in the 90s, unless you were at the Folsom Street Fair in San Francisco or in a Berlin techno dungeon, people were not exactly living out their BDSM lifestyles out in the open. No. No. <laughs> Unless you were in those very specific places. It's not exactly like dominants are like walking their submissives down the street wearing a leash. Unless you're in Berlin. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. At the clubs. <laughs> Hence, Laura and Suzette met on the internet where these types of communities were thriving and people could find these like-minded individuals. With the comfort of a shield. Exactly. From the safety and comfort of their own home. And their den. <laughs> anonymity. Because that's also what the internet provides or provided for better or for worse. Now, like I was saying, a cornerstone of BDSM is consent. It's extremely important to have essentially a contract or an understanding of once you get into these roles or this play, you can expect what the limits are. Yeah. But not so much in the type of BDSM that Lore and Suzette were interested in and practiced. Okay. Gorian-style BDSM. This is a type that was created by a philosophy professor named John Norman, who wrote 25 science fiction novels set on the planet Gore, was a place where... Now, I'm using this term basically because this is how this world was set up where all women were slaves who must obey men and fulfill their every sexual desire. Wow. Yes. So lore on gore. Lore on gore, yes. Usually in BDSM, like I said, you have your boundaries, you have the things that you pre-agree to, and you also have safe words. Yeah. Not so much in Gorian BDSM. Basically, once you submit to a dominant which they at the time called masters, but we we're trying to get away from that language, obviously, they can do anything they want to you. Without limitation. No limitation. Well, that sounds like abuse. Yes, it's very abusive. It's basically like they can, they're financially in control of you in your life. They can touch you in whatever way that they want. It is a very extreme, and I think 
kind of frightening form of BDSM, obviously. And it sounds like it was rooted in a lot of misogyny. It seems weird because it's based on a science fiction novel, you said? Yes. And based on what I read about it, it seems like it's very gendered because obviously anyone can be submissive. Anyone can be dominant. This is not a gendered situation as far as BDSM goes. And it sounds like this Gorian type of BDSM. Now, you guys, I got most of my information from a book whose title was changed because we're talking about getting away from terminology. I have like a early 2000s version because I get all my books on thrift books. They're all old and used called Internet Slave Master by John Glatt. He has since changed the title to Depraved for good reason. So you can find it under either of those titles. And I also read a book called Anyone You Want Me To Be, A True Story of Sex and Death on the Internet by John Douglas and Stephen Singular. I did like a, just a little, a fair bit of research into BDSM as a whole, but in general, the Gorian specifics I got mostly from those two books. So I don't know if anything has changed, but it seemed like from my understanding that it was very much women needing to serve men. Yeah. But for whatever reason, Suzette and Lore were interested in this type of BDSM. And there's a point made later that some people who have had hard lives and have decision fatigue and are so tired of fighting for everything actually are attracted to something where you're completely submissive and somebody else makes all your decisions for you. And it is like letting go. And so this would be the ultimate form of that because you're not even deciding what your boundaries or knows or consent are. Yeah. But you completely lose yourself. Exactly. I mean, I don't think it's a good trade-off, but this for whatever reason. And now for lore, I think it was less in practice and more in fantasy. There's a lot of fantasy role-playing going on on the internet Lore was, I believe, 29 when she met Suzette, and she was married with young children. And I think that this internet role-playing was more of a fantasy and escape for her. Yep. And the two of them, Lore and Suzette, ended up really connecting. So they met through this role-playing chat room, and they were both women who are predominantly straight looking for male doms in this Gorian world. But they really connected. They forged an amazing connection in later statements. Laura will say Suzette was kind of her soulmate. She said that they both really enjoyed playing with the idea of being a super submissive and that they sometimes served their dominance together. And she said, I thought of her as my sister of the caller. But that relationship also progressed to the point where even though it didn't seem like Lore met a lot of these people in person, she did end up flying out to meet Suzette in person a handful of times. Okay. And when they were together, there was some sort of sexual activity or intimacy involved between the two women and various dominance in the local community where Suzette lived. Okay. When they weren't seeing each other, they were in near constant communication online via basically an old school instant messenger type website. So it was like a in real time messaging site. Yeah. And they also emailed each other constantly. 
Lord kept most of her play online, while her more adventurous counterpart frequently connected with doms she met online in real life. Laura was four years older and a bit more settled than Suzette was, and she did kind of fret over some of Suzette's choices. Does she have kids as well? Suzette does not, but she has two Pekingese dogs she very much loves. So those are her children? Yes. I think that Suzette was a little bit more adventurous, which to Laura seemed potentially reckless as far as meeting people that she didn't really know out in the world. But as far as decision-making, the one choice that Laura really worried about Suzette with was deciding to take a job with a man and employer that she had met through one of these sites who was considered a dominant. In the Gorian world. In the Gorian world. And this was in early 2000. And in fact, Suzette had arrived in Kansas City for this new opportunity on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2000. How cool that this is coming out. This is coming out on Valentine's Day. So 24 years after Suzette arrived in Kansas City. Wow. Well, at first, Suzette had not been entirely honest about her relationship with her new employer to Lore. Huh. She said, yes, he's involved in this world, but I know it's not a good idea to mix business and pleasure. And this is a huge opportunity. She was getting paid a lot of money to take care of this man's elderly father because that's what Suzette did for a living. She was a home health care provider. But soon it came out that... She was, in fact, involved in a very sexual relationship and dom-sub relationship with this man who was allegedly also her employer. Okay, on the internet before she went to Kansas City. Yes, so she had already been involved with him on the internet, and Lore knew that that type of thing, you shouldn't have these worlds kind of conflate insofar as your livelihood and what you depend on to live and survive. Even though she's in the fantasy world of that, she doesn't think that Suzette should actually be tying everything that she's doing in her entire life to this man. Yeah. In that way, and that it's a recipe for disaster. But it eventually comes out that that is the way that this was going. So Laura is a little concerned. So her antenna is up and she's checking in even more often with Suzette. And she had no idea, though, how bad it could possibly get. And that in a matter of weeks, she would begin to suspect that the person she was emailing was no longer her sub-sister and soulmate, but instead a predator. Determined to uncover the truth and find her friend, Lore would ultimately go undercover for the FBI and help bring a serial killer to justice. Yes. Amazing. Yes. This is a very crazy episode. It's actually a set of episodes. It's going to be a two-parter, which if you are a regular listener of this podcast, this is our 190th episode, Andy. Then you will know. Not counting Patreon and bonuses. Yeah, not even counting that. I have never done a two-parter before. I'm usually not a fan of two-parters because I really like to deliver a full meaty episode to you guys every week, which we've done without taking a week off forever. But when I got into this one, I realized that 
it was going to be stretching into the three and four hour mark. And I felt myself as I was writing, kind of summing up some things that I felt like needed explaining. And I certainly did not want to do the eight, eight victims we will be talking about today, any shortchanging, just because this is an episode that features many victims, unfortunately, rather than our usual episode, which has maybe one or two. Can we also take a moment to appreciate the fact that Jesse has never taken a week off? <laughs> For the past so cute. over three and a half years that we've been doing this, even when we had maternity, we doubled up and did two episodes a week for like, what, eight weeks before we gave birth? For six weeks, yeah. Or maybe more. You're right. Yeah. So I am very excited about this first two-parter. Yes. And, and I'm, I think that you guys are going to be excited about it too because there are going to be two very complete episodes. This is not a, a situation where... <laughs> You get 30 minutes of content broken up in uh, amongst four weeks. I am going to deliver you to dynamite full episodes, but we will just have to continue this in part two because it is a doozy of a story and it is a little different than some of the cases we've covered in the past, different in many ways because we don't also usually cover serial killers, but this is... A case that does involve love. In fact, you know, John Glatt's book, the reason I ended up buying it in this like bunch of John Glatt used books was because the byline is a true story of seduction and murder. This is a story where, like in all of our stories, there are people who are desperate and desirous of love and connection and stability and hope. And somebody else takes advantage of that for their own nefarious purposes. Yep. So as much as we usually stay away from this type of content, I'm very excited to delve into it with you guys over the next two weeks. And we can really discuss all parts of this. I have a question. Sure. Are you going to leave us with a cliffhanger? You know, I, I found a good, like, stopping spot, to be honest. <laughs> it feels like very complete of one era of where we are and moving into the next era. That's more Miss Prey. It is, because I also, I'm going to have to figure out more cliffhangers in the future as far as if I get into any other forms of writing. But I didn't want to leave you guys hanging for a whole week not knowing what happened. Although there is a thread of something we're going to start in this episode that gets picked back up finally in the finale, which I'm excited about. So yeah, like I said, all of the women and people involved in this case who become victims of this horrible man are people that were just trying to make a better life for themselves and trying to find love. And I think the saddest part, there's a couple circumstances where it was really just people trying to make a better life for their kids. Yeah. And that's where I think like the real love comes from is what you are willing to do for your child. And Going back to Lore, it really was Lore, who is this BDSM bestie, and Suzette's mother, who were the real drivers of how this serial killer ended up finally being caught, as well as a very, very dedicated probation officer, of all things, who ID'd this person very early on and helped basically marshal the forces to eventually... Awesome bring this person to justice. So we will be discussing 
eight victims of the serial killer John Edward Robison today, as well as a ninth victim who would be discovered shockingly close to his family. It's essentially a victim that it was hidden in plain sight. And though we are discussing a predatory con man with multiple victims, we will also be discussing the heroic family and friends of these individuals and the brave law enforcement officers who eventually brought him to justice, as well as a couple really brave BDSM enthusiasts who went undercover here. Yeah, that's so dope. So beyond just depraved by John Glatt, which you may also know in its old format, Internet Slave Master, and the John Douglas book, which by the way, John Douglas, if that sounds familiar to you, it's because he is the very famous FBI profiler who wrote Mindhunter. Amazing. Yes. So that was his book as well. There's also an excellent 2019 episode of 2020. I think that they did a redo of it essentially. So it calls back to a early 2000s episode, but it has new information, which we will be discussing in the second part of this show. There's uh, some other notes and things. So please go to the show notes if you want the complete list of references. So our depraved tale begins on December 27th, 1943 in the Chicago suburb of Cicero, Illinois. John was basically the middle child of all middle children, as I feel like middle children of five are. Yeah. yeah. Right in the middle. By all accounts, his family was completely ordinary. There was not anything extremely prominent about this family, nor was there anything overly abusive. It sounds like his dad was a machinist who was prone to alcoholism but wasn't particularly violent in that alcoholism, and that his mother was a strict disciplinarian, and John actually despised his mother even more than his occasionally drunk father. Okay. Well, we know how that goes. Yes, exactly. He did not like his strict mom. He did seem to like his father. He also had hot-cold relationships with his siblings, so he did not care. And were they mostly male or female? A mix. So he had two brothers and two sisters. And he did not care for his eldest brother, but he did love his younger brother. And I, I think it was also hit and miss with his sisters. Yeah. So also doesn't like authority, apparently. It's interesting that he doesn't like the more authoritative members of his family, for sure. Well, a little bitty John with baby fat cheeks had an early brush with fame when he was nine years old. He was about to turn 10. He was flown to London with a bunch of fellow Boy Scouts to sing for Queen Elizabeth in 1957. Weird. It's very weird. And he apparently managed to meet Judy Garland, who was also there for this event. This is so strange. Yeah. So he's talking to Dorothy and he says to her, this cheeky little almost 10-year-old, hey, us Americans have to stick together, huh? And she was so overwhelmed by how funny he was that she, I guess, laughed and said, oh, you're totally right, and gave him a kiss on the cheek. And there was, like, another famous actress that he ended up talking to. And so this became his childhood claim to fame. He even ended up on the front page of a newspaper under the lead, Chicago Boy Scout leads troop to sing for Queen. It must be hard to peak at nine. <laughs> I guess he was just chasing that fame. Now, this is really interesting, Andy. 
in a very bizarre coincidence, he's on the front page with a picture and that headline. And right next to him in the, I think it was the Kansas City Star, was a story about another significantly more infamous serial killer. Wow. Talk about foreshadowing. Yeah, it was Ed Gein or Ed Gein. I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, woe is correct. He is the inspiration behind so many horror movies like Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and The Silence of the Lambs. Mm. Isn't he also in Mindhunter? I think he might have been. Yeah, I think so. So he was, I guess, being apprehended at this time that John was singing for the queen. Is he the one that put his mom's head on a stake? Yes, and he was the one who made, like, skin suits. Yeah. And all sorts of home furnishings, let's say, out of human parts. This is why we can't do serial killer episodes, because it's just so crazy. Yeah, and this is not my genre of serial killer, guys. This is this is why a, a John Edward Robinson makes more sense to me about somebody, like, preying on people who are looking for love versus just, like, straight up, like, Nipple shades. Did you hear those? Like it was yeah. like a like <laughs> yes. a lampshade made out of human nipples. Yeah, lampshades made out of human nipples are are not love murders game. Talk about a niche. That is not what I got into true crime for. I got to tell you guys. No, neither of us. So yes, that was his first time ever being in a newspaper, and that was his counterpart on the first page, which is insane. So early on, John decided that he wanted to be a priest. Uh, He ended up changing his mind by the time he went to school. He went to community college to become an x-ray technician. Now, John was crafty, but not book smart. We are going to discuss some of his unbelievable abilities to compartmentalize, to keep cons running, to have not a double life, but a multitude of lives all going on at the same time, which I'm sure is very hard to keep track of, but I think that this guy was not an intellectual genius, let's say. Okay. He's not a super genius villain here. He's just a really bad person who likes to keep all of the murder plates spinning, essentially. So this was his first instance when he's in school to become an x-ray technician that he basically says, well, this is stupid because I feel like I've learned everything that I need to learn and I'm not going to stick around to get my qualification or get any real world experience that would actually benefit people who are coming to get their x-rays taken. So he just noped out of school without a degree, without going through any sort of hospital training that you are supposed to before you are able to actually be an x-ray technician. And he just lied. He started forging documents saying that he had multiple degrees, that he had been through various training programs, that he was licensed and qualified. And he managed to scam his way into working at a Chicago hospital. Oh, my God. That is where he met and married a 20-year-old woman named Nancy Joe. So the year is 1964. He is 21, and she was 20. And apparently, John took a, quite a shine to this young woman and proposed basically on their first date, and she got knocked up pretty soon after that. No. Yes. His family, his mother especially, was not excited about this because it sounds like they were a religious family. So they they had quite the shotgun wedding. However, the marriage did last for a very, very long time. Nancy Joe would remain loyally by John's side for the next 40 
years. Holy shit. He knew when he saw her. I mean, she was ride or die in some ways. Yeah. And some people question exactly how much Nancy knew about what was going on in John's life after he was brought to justice. She was extremely loyal. And there's, of course, questions about, is this a Stockholm syndrome type of situation? Of course. Is she also a victim or is she somebody who's an enabler? Yeah. She does not seem to be anyone who was involved directly with his crimes. That's for sure. But how much did she let slide and how much did she enable to happen is the big question. Yeah. Within months of this wedding and marriage, John would end up getting thrown out of the hospital that he should not have been working at anyway for not just lying about his qualifications and not being good at his job, but also for embezzling from the hospital. Excuse me? Oh, yeah. We would have to do a three-parter if I got into every detail of all of his... All of his cons. Yes, because there's so (laughs) many. Over the next decade, John and Nancy Joe would welcome four children. They had a son, John Jr. Then they had a daughter named Kimberly. And then they had twins, Christopher and Christine, which completed their family. Wow. Yes. So over the next decade, they have four children. He would also con his way into medical practices from Chicago to Kansas City and various other places and suburbs of those places. He would embezzle hundreds of thousands of dollars. He would face only medium repercussions. He would score himself a nice little rap sheet. He would have tons of affairs and just generally be a good-for-nothing human being. Wow. Let's get him a trophy. Well, Andy, you are a psychic because (laughs) he does get himself a trophy. You're fucking lying. No, I'm not. We'll get there in just a second, but that's one of his little bit scams and cons. So we're going to just do some of the highlight reel of some of his best and worst cons. I guess his best ones are the ones we don't know about. So this is just a highlight reel of his worst cons because these are the ones that he got caught at. Oh, my God. In August of 1969, John was found guilty of embezzling $33,000 from an employer, which would be more like, oh, gosh, I don't even know, probably 300000 or something. It was like a big differential when I was doing the inflation from 1969 to 2024. Yeah, can you imagine? Yeah, and then the doctor who had employed him said that it was actually closer to $100,000 in 1969 money in losses for the medical practice, but they could only end up proving that it was 33000 So they said they lost way more than actually what he was legally convicted of. He had used the doctor's signature stamp to process checks and then cash them himself. He also had patients who were paying by check just pay directly to him. So they'd say, who should I write the check out to? And he'd say, John Robinson. Oh, my God. Yeah. Beyond just the embezzling, which to the practice's mind was probably the worst part, he also did some very bizarre things. Like the owner of the practice, the doctor, his son was 15 years old. And the son later said that he'd be hanging around the office. And John would regale him with stories of his sexual exploits, even though he's supposed to be a happily married man with children, and tell him about various strip clubs he was going to, places where you could find sex workers or easy sex, including a place called the Jewel Box, which was known for having 
transgender sex workers and dancers. I'd say that's probably the worst part for the practice. <laughs> probably. Money you can get back. But your you child's innocence. Trauma. <laughs> yeah. So he was like, why is this guy telling me these things? And he was talking about women he was having an affair with and things he was getting up to. He must have been doing things to patients, too. Oh, God, I'm sure some weird stuff. He was also having affairs at this point, and he did have a number of affairs with various coworkers. So I'm sure he was sexually harassing women, but it's 1969. So they're like, well, that's just part of the job because that's what 1969 was like. Jesus. So he's doing that. And by the time they caught him and they figured all of this out, they found out that he had also stolen office chairs. Were they like Eames? I don't know. I just am imagining that they're actually just like the normal like staples or like office mate, like like swirly chairs. They're not like super nice or anything. Just he's so petty and cheap that he's also just stealing the office chairs. Unreal. He's rolling it down the avenue. (laughs) Exactly. He needs something to transport all those checks, you know? This is the first time that he was legally found responsible because There had been other times that he was fired from bezeling, and usually they settled out of court for just restitution. So it's like you pay back the money and we don't have to bring the law into this. But that time, this was criminal. It needed to happen. However, he did not get any time in jail or prison. He was only given three years probation for this, and he had to pay back the money. He used a fraudulent resume with fraudulent lying qualifications to get his next job at Mobile Oil. And there he was caught in 1970, so the very next year, stealing $372 worth of postage stamps. Wow. Yeah, which I guess is more like $3,000 in today's money, because I did look that up, because I was like, that seems like a $372 to risk your whole job on. But I guess it's more like $3,000. Then he started a fake consulting business and tried to get investors on board by forging letters by prominent businessmen. So he would send out these letters from famous businessmen in the industry saying things like, I'm investing in this company. It's great. You should definitely jump on board. The thing is, is that he did end up getting a lot of money this way. But one of the letters went out to somebody who actually knew the guy that it was supposedly from. And so the guy was like, yes, oh, of course, with my buddy so-and-so's in, I'm in. And then he reached out to that guy, and the guy goes, what? What are you talking about? He said, what? I don't even know this man. I don't know this company. He's using my name. And this is also why I do not think that John Edward Robinson deserves the title of being some sort of genius serial killer. Because if you actually look at the letter that is supposedly from this man, he spells his name wrong. It's literally like, He writes his name and then prints it again, like you did in old-timey business letters. And he spelled the last name wrong from one line to the next. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's why I'm like, you know, you don't need a lot of intelligence to become a good flim-flam man. Yeah, back then. Especially back then. You just needed balls, essentially. You needed balls and to be able to take your accusers in the face when they caught you and just straight up lie to them. You just needed to be morally corrupt and not afraid of the consequences, which I think is just being a psychopath. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So in 1976, he had to, again, he was back in the legal system. 
He pleaded no contest to interstate securities fraud and some mail charges because he was alleging to be somebody through the mail because he was sending out these letters. Again, he only received probation, but he must have been squirreling away some of these ill-begotten goods and cash because in July of 1977, he was able to move his family into a beautiful $125,000 home, which was at the time the very upwardly mobile neighborhood of Stanley, Kansas. So that's, that's like somewhere in the neighborhood of $750,000 in today's money. But it probably wow. was an even nicer house, though, because I think that real estate is appreciating even faster than inflation. Yep. So at this point, he's 33 years old. He's already got a rap sheet. But his neighbors don't know that, of course. So he seems like to all the world a good father, a pillar of the community, and a solid businessman. John had started yet another company called HydroGrow that sold water-based hydroponic growing system and kits. Oh, my God. Okay. Of course, he was still scamming people by convincing them to invest in this company. And he was doing things like promising people 3X and saying you'll absolutely get this crazy return and basically saying that he was doing a lot better than he was. And then he would just take their money and never give them a cent. Oh, my God. He did this to a man that was retired and was trying to pay for his wife's cancer treatment. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care. And he knew completely, like, that this guy was using their life savings. It was $25,000 in 1970-something money. And was like, this is for my wife's cancer treatment. And he had guaranteed him, like, a 3X return. And he just said, oops, the money's gone. Good luck with your wife's cancer. There's a special layer of hell for people who take advantage of elderly. And people who are desperate to heal the person they love most in the world. Anyone who has had anyone in, that they love in their life who has been terminally ill, you know that you would do absolutely anything to give them the treatment that they need. And for somebody to take advantage of that desperation and love for their partner or their child, as we'll see, is really extra sick. Yeah. So he's doing that, but he had an office space. And to his neighbors and to people in the town, it really did seem like he was going places, that HydroGrow was successful. He obviously has this beautiful house. He has these great kids. The kids were doing great in school. He's also a scoutmaster, and he's refereeing his daughter's soccer games. He was a t-ball coach and a church elder. Honestly, if anything, I wouldn't say this guy is, like, brilliant, but I would say his time management skills are on point because this all just sounds exhausting to me without the cons and murders. I know, but they love a facade. Oh, he loved his facade so much. And I'm not a big scholar of serial killers, but other people have pointed out that this is a very BTK-like persona. I can see that. Yes. He also kind of elected himself as leader of the Pleasant Valley Homeowners Association. And it's just, it goes back to your whole point. He likes control. All of the little awards that he can hang on his wall. Oh, speaking of, that was perfect. What a perfect transition, Andy. In a hilarious attempt to elevate his public persona, he fraudulently created a Kansas City Man of the Year Award. Man of the Year. Man of the Year. Through, like, fake personas and letters and even, like, 
he used a real charity that he kind of volunteered for for a second, but like then fraudulently used them in order to fake nominate himself for this award that did not exist that he had created. Then, Andy, he bought his own plaque that said Man of the Year, John Robinson, and somehow tricked a reporter into covering the story and tricked the mayor's office into awarding this fake award, the inaugural Kansas City Man of the Year Award to John Robinson. Where'd he put it? I don't think he had it for very long. Let me explain. He then organized a luncheon, a luncheon in his honor where he invited like the 50 most prominent business people in the Kansas City region to celebrate himself. And he was given his award by a state senator who had been hoodwinked into this. And when the state senator came, he had somebody give them a a speech to read about how great John was that he had written himself. That's what I'm telling, babe. Peaking at nine is bad news. (laughs) This is is chasing the dragon of fame still. He needs that applause. (laughs) Oh, my God. This all happens. And there was a journalist for the Kansas City Star who was like, something doesn't seem right. Now, that was the publication that had covered and helped him kind of get there. And then I'm not sure if it was the same journalist or a different journalist who realized they had been hoodwinked. And this person sniffed the whole sorted fraudulent affair out. And he landed himself back in the paper. Andy, not for man of the year which was what he was hoping he was going to be covered as. Instead, he was under the headline, Man of the Year ploy backfires on honoree. Quote, a mayor, state senator, and a big city newspaper were unwitting puppets recently when a local businessman apparently decided to tinker with the news. Oh, my God. And they revealed that he had already had two convictions for embezzlement and male securities fraud and that he had himself arranged this dubious honor. Obviously, if they look into (laughs) it, they're going to find all of his charges. Yeah, so he was persona non grata at this point. And he, of course, rebutted, saying that this was all a lie. It was character assassination. Everyone's out to get him, obviously. Hydro Grow kind of limped along, but a lot of people obviously wanted their money back. They did not get their money back. And eventually he decided to put Hydro Grow on pause for a little while, get the heat off of him, because I think now he was telling people, well, I'm bankrupt, so you can't have your money back because there was a public outcry. And he decided to get a day job. He's going to work a nine to five now. He's been an entrepreneur for a long time. Some type of scammy entrepreneur for a long time. And now it's time to go work for the man. Jesse, who knew that a better pillowcase is all you need for a better sleep? Let's talk about practicing self-care while you sleep. Set yourself up for better sleep with Blissey's award-winning 100% Mulberry Silk Pillowcases. It reduces frizz, tangles, and prevents breakage. That's because it keeps the moisture in your hair and keeps your skin care products and natural moisture on your skin. Well, cotton literally absorbs it off of your face. Say goodbye to wrinkles, dry, flaky, and red skin in the morning and wake up with healthier and shinier hair. 
There are a lot of dupes out there that claim satin can be an alternative to silk, but that is not the case. Satin is made from synthetic fibers like polyester, while silk is a luxurious, all-natural fiber. Silk is more breathable, moisture-wicking, and gentle. It's also more durable and long-lasting. Think of it as an investment in getting better sleep and waking up feeling ready to take on the day. Blissy pillowcases are made of 100% mulberry silk, which is naturally hypoallergenic, so you can sleep more comfortably without itching or rashes. And unlike other silk pillowcases, these are of the highest quality silk and are machine washable and durable. I love my Blissy <laughs> so much. I love my Blissy eye mask. I swear it helps me sleep better on red eyes. I've like never slept as well as I sleep with my Blissy eye mask on a flight. Yes, I also love the fact that I wake up looking refreshed and not like crinkled, not creased, and that I can throw them right in the washing machine because I am not a girl that can special wash things. <laughs> We're not special wash girlies. No. Everyone honestly loves them. They have a ton of different prints and colors. They make great gifts. I know I gifted my whole family them this holiday season. There's an option for literally anyone. Men love them too. They have over 1 million raving fans, and you and your loved ones could be next. Try now risk-free for 60 nights at blissy.com slash lovemurder and get an additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder to get an additional 30% off. Your skin and hair will thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Little Spoon. If the time you're spending cooking these days only for your kid to reject the meal feels criminal at this point, listen up because your year is about to get a major upgrade. You need to try Little Spoon. Little Spoon offers fresh, healthy meals and snacks that your kiddo will love for every eating stage. Little Spoon is a one-stop shop for healthy, easy meal times and snack times for your baby, toddler, and big kid delivered right to your door. Their goal is to make keeping your kid healthy feel like the easiest part of your day so that you can cut through all the drama of mealtime, time saving plus convenience without compromise. Little Spoon has some incredible products. Baby blends are fresh organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees. To take the stress out of starting solids, I know that would have definitely helped me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Biteables, which are Transition to table early finger foods that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding, which is always helpful, and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. Yes, yeah, so you don't have to spend literal hours just making everything so tiny and still second-guessing <laughs> yourself about whether or not they're going to choke on it. Literally. And now that my kids are three and five, we really love the plates and smoothies. Plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and taste amazing. Even the pickiest kids including my son, love them. So think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and even adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. Smoothies are healthy snack time with convenient pouches made with amazing flavors like strawberry banana shake and purple carrot acai bowl. I cannot tell you the number of times one of our kids, you can guess who, has refused to eat anything, but will absolutely slurp down a little spoon smoothie. So it has been a total lifesaver for me. Did we mention that it all comes right to your door? So flexible, so easy, and everything stores in the fridge and freezer. I pick the menu and change up whatever I order every time. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. I love it. My kid loves it. The grandparents love it. It's a huge win-win for our family, and it can be for yours as well. Simplify your kiddo's mealtime with 30% off your first order. 
Go to littlespoon.com slash lovemurder and enter our code lovemurder at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. So he became an employee relations manager at Guy's Foods. So Guy's Foods was a snack food company, so prepackaged snack foods like potato chips and that sort of thing. Okay. Over the next nine months of being their employee relations manager, John embezzled thousands of dollars. He would hire fake employees and then pay them, and then he would cash their paychecks because they weren't real employees. Oh, my God. (laughs) He also had a blistering love affair and sexual affair with his secretary, and it was the affair that actually got him caught in the end. The mistress knew exactly what criminal activity he was up to because she was the one being his receptionist and administrative assistant, and she was helping him run these scams, but she had been so taken in by him, which, y'all, if you have not seen this man before, you will be so confused as to why, because he looks like your kindly Midwestern uncle, a dub bears type of guy with like a little beer belly hey, and hey, a round hey, face. Hey, let's keep the bears out of this, okay? <laughs> I'm just talking about the SNL sketch. <laughs> Duh, bears. Duh, bears. Yes. Don't think Leonardo DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can, because we're barking up the wrong tree. He's not some suave guy here. So he's having an affair with the secretary. She knows all the dirt. I mean, she knows where, I was going to say metaphorically, where the bodies are buried, but he was not actually killing at this time, at least that we know of. But she knows what dirt he's been up to. And so she tells him that he's got to leave his wife. He's got to leave Nancy Joe and marry her. Or she is going to go to not only Guy's Foods, but she's going to go to the police and tell them what he's been up to. Hmm. I don't think he's going to like that very much. No, he doesn't believe that she's actually going to do it. So I think that's the other thing about being a con man is that I think that it's also a little emotional chicken where you are betting on people threatening things that they're actually not going to follow through with. Yeah. So he did not think that she was actually going to follow through. And he said, sure, then why? Like, you'll go down too. Good luck. But she did. She went to the police. Awesome. Oh, man. You know, honestly, I wish he had just stayed with her and divorced Nancy Joe and let his family just, like, live a nice life away from him because it sounds like these two were really meant for each other. Yeah. (laughs) I know you're committing crimes. She's like, watch. But now I'm going to force an ultimatum where you have to choose me over your wife. (laughs) We can commit crimes together. Or I'll go to the cops, which I don't want to do. I don't want to do, but I'll do it, John. Well, she went to the cops and maybe he learned a lesson about... Keeping his women in line. Exactly. Sounds like he did, unfortunately. I would say this is... We say, for better or worse, this is definitely for worse, the lesson that was learned from this experience. And so he was turned into the police. Guy's Foods wanted him arrested. And he was fined and charged with felony theft in 1981. And this time he did have to spend some time in jail, but only 60 days. And it wasn't prison. It was just like local jail. Yeah, they referred to this sentence as a, quote, shock sentence, essentially, that this was supposed to be something that was supposed to kind of scare him straight, put him on the straight and narrow, because he seemed like to the authorities a nonviolent, white-collar criminal who had a family and actually could probably put some of this 
nefarious plotting to society's benefit. Like if he decided to be a productive member of society, that his skill set would, I guess, bolster the economy or help people somehow. So this this 60 days was really more of a, this is a warning. You don't want to have to do this again. And you don't want to have to go to the state pen. Yeah, but like the fact that they were treating him that way, should, like he's not going to learn a lesson like that. No, I mean, it's it's shocking. And they and they talk about in both the books I read about how there's a very distinctive difference. And I understand why between how white collar criminals are treated versus violent offenders. And there should be for sure. But it seemed that everyone who interviewed him during this period that worked in the prison, who was a prison psychiatrist, let's say, Nobody thought he had the capability of being violent. They just thought he was a con man. He's a liar and he's a con man. And in fact, usually con men like living like straight up like I'm going to live as a con man and that's my racket, usually try to avoid any sort of physical altercations or things like that could get them caught because you're bringing attention to yourself. Yeah. So they thought that that's what kind of guy he was mistakenly. So Nancy did think of leaving him at this time because, of course, during this period, he embarrassed the family. It was well known that he was spending 60 days in jail. I believe that this was in the newspapers. And also it came to light that how he was caught was through the secretary that he had been having an affair with for months. Okay. I'm guessing that if she was willing to rat him out to the police and to their employers, she might have gone to Nancy herself as well to blow him in there as well. So Nancy found out, and this is her first, it seems like, first real concrete proof of him cheating. It seems like he had cheated countless times before. We can't even get into it. But this might have been the first time that she really couldn't even use denial to say that it wasn't happening because it was part of the whole discovery and trial process. So he does his 60 days and nothing changes. She decides to stay with him for, I think he convinced her for the betterment of their children. And also he just needs her as a cover. He needs to play this family man the whole time. So he convinces her. He really loves her. It was a mistake. It's better for the kids if we stay together. And she takes him back, which I think was a very grave mistake. But he's also learning when Nancy takes him back and when he's basically getting little slaps on the wrist by the justice system, he's like, I can get away with anything. I can do whatever I want. So he started yet another company. He called it Equaplus. He said it was because he wanted to take equity or anything else he could get. So Equity Plus, basically. It was supposed to be a marketing company. And this time, Nancy was his secretary. She said, you know what? The kids are all in school or getting out of school at this point. So I'm going to (laughs) work with you at this point. And I get to be your secretary. So you don't sleep with the next one. So you could just sleep with me. Yes. And as John continued to get away with everything, he began to push boundaries. He was fleecing more investors. He was being a little loosey-goosier than he had been in the past. He started propositioning neighborhood women. What? Yeah, don't do that, bro. He had fostered this image. And I think that after when some people found out about him spending some time in jail and the whole man of the year debacle, they were probably losing respect for him anyway. And he was like, well, I might as well take the whole mask off and start being disgusting with your wives. 
And there was one neighbor that it actually broke out into a physical altercation because he would not stop being creepy with that man's wife. Wow. Yeah. That wasn't enough for John, though. The next couple years, he opened up a brothel that catered to a particularly severe BDSM crowd. And then in 1984, well, John started murdering and he would not be stopped for 16 long years. Oh my God. In the summer of 1984, John Robinson attracted his first known victim by advertising for a new sales representative for his second marketing company, Equi2. I'm pretty sure that he had to shut the first one down because all of the investors and creditors were asking him for money, clearly. And he's like, sorry, Equiplus is out of business. I'm bankrupt. And then he's like, literally takes down the sign and then puts up like Equi2. <laughs> but we've got this new one. Would you potentially like to invest in Equi2? All of the fraud, two times more. Double your fraud. Literally. <laughs> okay, well, unfortunately, this is where things get very fucked up and sad. So 19-year-old Paula Godfrey applied for the job as a sales representative and was hired immediately. Paula was a very disciplined and bright young woman who was a near-professional-level figure skater. Wow. Yeah, so she did great in school, but her passion was definitely figure skating, and she was one of those people that got up and was on the rink at four in the morning to practice for hours before she would go to school. And she had gotten sick right before she had an audition for Disney on Ice. Oh, no. Yeah. So she ended up trying to, like, pull through the sickness to just perform, and it hadn't really worked out. But she was invited to audition the next year. So Paula, being a resourceful and responsible young woman, was like, okay, I'm definitely going to keep up my training, and I'm going to audition again. But I also need a secondary job like option. I need a career path that is more viable because being a professional figure skater when you're not going to the Olympics seems like a very hard and slim career path. So she was still training, getting up like in the wee small hours of the morning and going to the rink and training. And she was planning on auditioning once more. However, she was also very bright and she was interested in getting into the business world in some capacity. So when she saw the advertisement for a sales representative at what sounds like Equi Plus, Equi Two, a very corporate-y type company, she thought that this might be exactly the type of environment where she can get the professional training she needs to succeed in the business world. Yeah. Okay. So she was thrilled. She was still living at home with her parents. She's 19 years old. She came home. She said, I got the job. They're excited for her. They had, I believe, two younger children at home as well at this time. And she said that her boss seems great and that there were some other girls that were hired too and that the boss is flying them all down to San Antonio for a very intense and special training that mostly have to do with how to properly do some clerical type functioning. And she was like, and this is basically the first step to her professional education. And her boss is going to pay for this training and her boss is going to essentially like as she gets more licensed, give her more work and promotion. So this is something that's very exciting for her. 
And the Godfreys were really excited for her as well. So on September 1st, 1984, John picked Paula up at her parents' house to bring her to the airport. So off she goes. They're excited for her. And they say, of course, you know, call us when you land. They knew what hotel she was staying in, as any parents do, especially because I think the world was a little bit different back then, but not so much that 1819 still feels like your kid. I mean, they were just in your house. She was still living with her parents. Totally. Well, her father, Bill, knew something was very wrong when hours went by that very first night and she did not call. Just Paula was not that type of kid. And he was trying to call the hotel. They had no record of her ever checking in. Oh, my God. He got so desperate that he actually flew to San Antonio and looked for her. He went to the hotel. He tried to retrace what steps she may have taken. He was so desperate. He was driving around San Antonio trying to find her. Because I think that as a parent, you, you don't know what else to do. So upon not finding her and finding out that she never checked into this hotel for real, it wasn't just somebody who didn't know what they were talking about. He flew back and he filed a missing persons report. And he also hired a private investigator. And then he went to John because when she had gotten hired, she had said, this is the office space. This is the information. This is the man who's my boss. This is where the training is. So he knew that Equi2 had office space in this area and he could go right to the office. And John just basically said, I don't know. I don't know what happened. She got on the plane. She went to the training. I don't know. She must have ran off in San Antonio. I don't know what you're talking about. And he was like, that is not true. That's not my daughter. She doesn't just run off. And if I don't hear from her in three days, I am not just going to light up the police. I'm going to light you up. Like, I'm going to physically. I can't believe he said three days. Yeah, he's like, if you are at all in contact with her and she's in a training and you're still affiliated with her in any way, you better get her to call us or else there's going to be real hell to pay is essentially what he said. And lo and behold, two days later, Bill received a note in the mail, allegedly from Paula, saying that she was fine and that she was exploring life and that she didn't want any further contact with her family. This note was handwritten. Her family did not believe that it was her handwriting. Okay. Wow. Now, the police had opened a missing persons report. However, they also received a note, allegedly from Paula, saying, my dad is going to be coming to you. And I am 19 years old. I am an adult. And I've decided that I want to cut off ties with my family. I am not missing. I am totally fine. And they believed the note. Ugh, idiots. They said, look, there's kids that run away every day. This is also the 80s. And they're saying, she's a 19-year-old woman. What are we going to do? Not our business. The Godfreys would tearfully say that they did everything they could. It sounds like the PI came up with dead ends as well. And eventually, they just had to focus on raising the two younger children that were still in their home and try to, like, move on in some capacity and not let it ruin the rest of their lives. Yeah. It would take 16 more years for them to find out what may have happened to Paula. So while Paula was disappearing, John was already involved heavily in some type of BDSM cult. This is called the International Council of Masters. This cult slash council had been founded in London in 1921. 
The first meeting of this council in 1921 was held on Friday the 13th. Giving Friday the 13th a bad name. It truly is. Uh, According to John Glatt's book, the date of the meeting was chosen because these men thought of themselves as a cult. Do you know how people start cults? And they're like, it's not a cult. They were very aware that it was a cult. Yeah. They knew that if their personal perversion became known to the public, that they would be ruined. The Chronicle then described the historic first meeting, which set the seal of rituals still practiced by the cult to this day. Now, this book was published in 2004, I believe, so I do not know if it is still practiced to this day. The first meeting began with now seven men entering the room clothed only in a purple hooded robe. After a few minutes, each man in turn left the room and returned with his bound slave. Now, I'm using that word even though now, in today's vernacular, we use dominant and submissive, but this was the vernacular of this particular cult. Yeah. Each slave wore metal cuffs connected to chains and a simple white robe tied at the waist with a purple cord. Then, after the slaves were assembled, each assuming a kneeling submissive position, they were instructed one by one to rise. When they did, each, quotation marks, master, untied his own personal submissive's robe and let it fall to the ground, revealing her body, so always women, to the entire group. Following this initial instruction of their submissives came the training as each master chose his particular piece of equipment. Over the next several years, meetings were held on a monthly basis, and as the guild grew, more and more rules and formalities were developed. A committee was even established to supervise formal training and trading, trading of humans, of female submissives between members and settle any disputes. Wow. Yes, Kansas City investigative journalist Kevin Petram of the NBC affiliate KSHB-TV has carried out extensive research on this cult. He discovered that John Robinson held a key position when he interviewed a former female member who had spent many years active in it before leaving. This journalist, Kevin, says Robinson was the cult's slave master. That's with a capital S, guys. And it was a position he excelled at. His job was to bring a victim to meetings for either beatings, torture, or rape. The former member, who claims to have been sexually mutilated as a punishment for trying to leave, picked out Robinson from a photograph saying that he was very near the top of the cult's chain of command. She also told the investigative journalist about at least three young girls, always heavily drugged, whom Robinson led into meetings on a collared chain leash. Wow. She didn't believe that they even knew what was going on, Kevin Petrem said. One of them did try and get away from Robinson once, but was restrained. So we are going to be discussing eight of his known victims, but it is possible, if not very likely, that there are many more. Yeah. So keep in mind, in the mid to late 80s, this is what's going on in his life. He's got the International Council of Masters that he's dealing with. He also leased a duplex where he was running his S&M style bordello, very likely preying upon young women who are down on their luck and sexually trafficking young women and girls. He's hitting on his neighbors. He's getting into fights with some of his neighbors, fist fights. He's fleecing investors. He had already successfully disappeared 
19-year-old Paula Godfrey, and he was still volunteering for his younger children's high school sports. It still was an elder in the church at this time. So he is a very busy man. (laughs) But he is not too busy at this point to help young pregnant women or mothers of young babies because he's so kind-hearted, Andy. I'm terrified. You should be. In December of 1984, John's probation officer, an actual hero named Steve Hames, got a very distressing phone call from the director of a charity called Birthright. You may have seen all of those billboards, and it is somewhat controversial because I believe it is known as an anti-abortion organization, but my local area one actually tries to dispel those notions and re- fit their organization for just helping young mothers or anyone who's experienced an unexpected pregnancy and doesn't know what to do. So this is supposed to be an organization, in theory, that is not trying to villainize or demonize anyone who does get an abortion or is desirous of an abortion. It is supposed to be a charity that helps young women who find themselves pregnant and are without resources. And it sounds like this director of this organization was on her shit because she recognized that something was very wrong when a local businessman and philanthropist came to her looking to help out one of the young women who go to Birthright for assistance. So this woman said that alarm bells had gone off when John had come to her saying that essentially he was a businessman and he worked with a church group and also a collective of Kansas City businessmen who wanted to give back to the community and specifically were trying to help in a way that they were able to provide housing for a young pregnant woman or a young mother and also give her resources for childcare and job training. Okay. Which sounds great in theory. But she did a background check on John and obviously flagged that he had been convicted of various fraudulent activities. And also just something wasn't adding up. She hadn't heard of this Kansas City outreach program that he was saying he was a part of before. And she knew a lot of the other charitable organizations in the area. So it seemed like nobody she knew had heard of this man. So she found out who his parole officer was and reached out to him in December of 1984. Unfortunately, as we have already seen and we'll come to find out even more, John always had schemes on schemes on schemes. So he had already successfully gotten another agency through the Truman Medical Center to provide him with a young woman to help, in quotation marks. So he apparently got hooked up with a social worker who did help place young women who ended up at the Hope House, which was a shelter for battered women and their children. And he was very convincing when he talked to this social worker. And I don't know if it was directly through Hope House or if this social worker within the Truman Medical Center ended up hooking him up with somebody else. But for one person who talked to him, and I think this was at the medical center, said that they did not want to work with him because when they said, oh, that sounds like a great opportunity, we actually have a young black woman who is about to give birth that would love that opportunity. 
He said, no, 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 a black woman. And they were like, excuse me? And he said, yes, I, um, we require helping a white woman and a white baby. Oh, my God. So I think that somebody had like passed on this because they were like, that's racist, number one. Yes. And yeah. number two, scary. It's scary, like scary that you're demanding to help. Because what, what are you doing with that white person and their white baby? So at that point, somebody else had passed him, but somehow he got past this situation and there was a lot of failure in the chain of command here and how he did end up finding himself with a 19-year-old mother, white mother, from Hope House. And this was a woman named Lisa Stasi. I heard it as Stasi and Stacy. It's S-T-A-S-I. And her adorable four-month-old baby, Tiffany. So Lisa's young life had been marred by tragedy. Her father had died when she was still a very young child, and one of her older brothers had committed suicide. She was a very loving and kind person who struggled with school. She was not very academically gifted, and she struggled with a sense of identity of who she was and what she wanted in the world. So she ended up dropping out of high school at 17 years old, and she kind of drifted to Kansas City because she's originally from Alabama, where at that time she met and fell in love with a young sailor named Carl Stasi. A close friend of Lisa's said that she was very, very attached to Carl and that all she wanted was to be with him and to create a loving family and a stable home. That was her number one desire in life. So they did get pregnant pretty quickly, and they were married in her home state of Alabama in August 1984 with her family present. So she was eight months pregnant at the time that they got married. Their baby, Tiffany, was born one month later in September of 1984, but the marriage quickly turned sour. It was like a month later. Oh, no. I think it was within a month of Tiffany's birth, so two months of the wedding. Now, what exactly happened? There's he said, she said. So Carl would later say that he had re-enlisted in the Navy or he was sent out on a naval assignment. So that's why he wasn't present for her, which still doesn't make any sense about how she still ended up in a woman's shelter. If he was just on a naval assignment, he, you would think ostensibly he would make sure that his wife and newborn child were taken care of. There's also reports, obviously, that there was abuse, there was violence in the relationship, and that she was abandoned financially and otherwise by Carl and left with no degree, no skill set. And I think at the time that she went to Hope House, a two or three month old baby. <sighs> and she was in Kansas City. Her whole family was back in Alabama. So she's very much alone, and she ended up at Hope House. So when she is there, she's obviously trying to find a home and a job, and she wants to provide for Tiffany on her own. So this opportunity seemed incredible. It was like a real white night moment where it's kind of like one of those big breaks where you're like, well, finally something good has happened to me because... The way that John, who was calling himself John Osborne, was spinning it was that he was a local philanthropist. 
He was going to supply her with an apartment, an opportunity to train as a silkscreen printer. She would also be able to get her GED, and she would receive childcare and an $800 a month stipend. So this seemed like a dream come true. Yeah. How are you not going to be stoked about that if you're someone who's working at Hope House? I mean, I, I don't want to be too harsh on all the, the levels of failure that allowed this man to take this woman and child only because I can only imagine how under-resourced they were and how desperate. And you guys all have to understand how convincing this man seemed constantly. He's a con man. Yeah. So I'm sure that the person who was responsible for this really did believe that they were doing the best thing for this mother and child. But unfortunately, what they did instead was deliver them into the hands of a serial murderer and predator. Andy, life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earnin. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. We are heading into another gifting season over here. Valentine's Day, birthdays, somehow there's always something new that costs money. Yep, and soon we'll also be getting the squeeze for things like spring break and family vacations and summer camps even right around the corner. Yep, and that's not to say nothing of all the other little things in life that just can't wait till you get paid. Earnin is a product that can help so much of life work so much more smoothly. Make Earnin part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Love Murder under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Love Murder under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a small business entrepreneur like moi or part of a huge enterprise, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform or, of course, cool vintage finds like Andy, Shopify has you covered. Jesse, I cannot even tell you how awesome it has been to reboot the Love Murder online store through Shopify. Oh my gosh, we have gotten so many positive comments about it from the people who are frequenting that store and buying from us. But Andy, I have a question for you. It's a very serious question. Are you ready? I'm ready. If you had to pick one favorite feature of Shopify, just one, for someone just starting or considering using it, what would it be? Oh my gosh, it has to be how easy it is to fully customize a front-facing online store for whatever you're creating. It allows you to pick from all of these different themes and then essentially fully just drag and drop, click and move whatever you want in order to have your ideal dream 
online store. Okay, so our merch store looks really good because of Shopify and not just because you're a design genius. It's Shopify. (laughs) Great answer. Also, Andy, did you know that Shopify actually powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States? It really is a truly global force powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. I'm honestly shocked it's not more. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lovemurder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash lovemurder. So Carl's sister, Kathy, so this is her sister-in-law, was still in Lisa and Tiffany's lives. So we don't really know what happened between Carl and Lisa, but we know that Kathy lived in the Kansas City area and she was still in touch with Lisa and her niece. And so Hope House probably trying to make room for another family who had been abused and were destitute had said, okay, you have this opportunity and now we have to clear you out of Hope House. So she ended up moving in with Kathy for a couple days until she could leave with John for her new opportunity and see her new place. So she's telling all of this to Kathy, and Kathy is getting this gut feeling that this might be too good to be true. Something doesn't seem on the up and up, and of course, they aren't able to look up information like we are, but you know, she hasn't heard of this organization either. She's a little worried, and she's asking a lot of probing questions, and Lisa seems to be overlooking a lot of them because she's so excited about this prospect. Now, on the day that John comes to Kathy's to pick her up, there's a total blizzard going on. It is January in 1985 now. And Kathy would later say that her bad feelings kind of intensified when he came to get her because he didn't park in her driveway, even though a blizzard was going on. He parked kind of down the street like he didn't want her to see his car or license plate. Huh. Yeah. And she's like, okay, he's here. And he like had very little contact with Kathy or her husband, David, and seemed just pretty intent on getting Lisa and Tiffany out of there to the point that Lisa had left her car, her vehicle that still had Tiffany's diapers and toys in Kathy's driveway and said, I'll be back soon to pick it up. He just wants to take me to where I'm going. Did she finally start getting some red flag bells? Well, she did. So Kathy and David had a bad feeling about this, but they wanted to believe the best. And she also promised that she would be in touch. And Kathy personally never spoke to Lisa again, but her mother, so Lisa's mother-in-law, did receive a phone call from her the very next night. In this phone call, Lisa was crying. She's sobbing. And she wanted to know why Betty, that's Carl's mother, her mother-in-law, was trying to take custody of Tiffany. And Betty was really confused. She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? And she's crying and she's really hysterical. And she said, I saw the papers. I saw the affidavit that Carl's divorcing me officially and that you're saying I'm an unfit mother and that you're going to take Tiffany away from me and that you want custody. And Betty is saying that is absolutely not true, but Lisa's really clearly worked up. She's very upset right now. Yeah. And she said, well, they want me to sign these papers. There's these blank papers they want me to sign so I can fight to make sure that I maintain custody of Tiffany 
And Betty, of course, is going, don't sign anything. Where are you? What's going on? Like, can I come over? And she's like, I already did. I already signed them. And so while Betty is trying on the phone to get through to Lisa, who is really upset at this point, Lisa just says, I can't talk. They're here. They? They. Yes. I wish that I could tell you that we were going to return to this day and, and I could tell you who the they was. We don't know. We don't know if he had some sort of accomplice and that's what was going on here, if it was maybe somebody from the International Council of Masters. We are not entirely sure who the they she is referring to, other than we know for sure that John Robinson was one of those men, obviously. You know what this reminds me of is the American Nightmare. Oh, like they're here or they took her and you're like, who? And wasn't it really just one guy? Yeah, but like, was it really just one guy or was there actually people coming to like talk to him about what to do with her or was he just telling her that because he was so crazy? Because I do believe there's a whole dark web world that does do these kidnappings for hire and stuff. So it's like, but we never like ended up finding out. It could have been that John was portraying himself as part of an organization. So when she says they, she's talking about John, but this organization of people that maybe didn't exist because he's also a con man. So if there, there was anyone else, we do not know. We do not know that. So this is, of course, a very frightening conversation for Betty to have with Lisa, and no one would ever speak to Lisa ever again after that. Wow. The next morning, which was Thursday, January 10th, 1985, Lisa and Tiffany were checked out of the Roadway Inn, which is where he had been putting them up, in Overland Park, and they disappeared. Their fate would not be known for 15 and a half long years. So they don't know what happened to the baby? They don't know. We will come back to what happened with both Lisa and baby Tiffany later. So okay. they eventually do find out. And I will tell you, but we're not going to talk about that right now. On Saturday, January 12th, Kathy, Lisa's sister-in-law, filed a missing persons report. She told them all about this guy who is called John Osborne. He worked at a company called Equi2. And Kathy's husband, David, even went to the office similar to Paula's dad and confronted John about this. And I guess when John had dealt with Paula's dad, he had been a little bit of a jerk, but he had been like, I don't know what happened. And he had played it really innocent versus when David approaches him, he gets immediately aggressive, like fucking back off and gets like, I'm going to push you. I'm going to shove you. Goes into aggressive mode. So now they're really freaked out. and. That night that David had gone to Equi 2 and that they had already filed a police report, they also get a phone call from a mysterious Father Martin who identifies himself as a priest and says that Lisa and Tiffany are totally safe. They're at the city mission. And if you need any more information, you can find me at this number, which, of course, did not work. It did work, but it was not to any place that they had ever heard of. And when they got through to somebody on that line, they said, this is not a mission. We do not know who a Father Martin is. And we certainly cannot tell you where a young woman and her baby are. And then naturally, the letters started arriving. The social worker that had helped place Lisa got a letter as well as Betty, the mother-in-law, and of course, her benefactor, John Osborne slash Robinson had also received a letter 
thanking him for helping her out in a time of need. These were all typed letters. And they said thank you to everyone who had been super helpful, but she needed to make it on her own. And she even mentioned in the letter that she didn't want to go back to Alabama because her brother was trying to convince her to step in and care for their grandmother, and she didn't want to do that. And they are thinking that at this point, John was learning how to better be a serial killer, how to get away with it. And so those two days that he was keeping Lisa and Tiffany at the Roadway Inn, he was getting to know her and her circumstance. Everybody said that he could be seemingly very empathetic, very kind, talking about her life and her goals. And, oh, you have family in Alabama? What's your family? What are their addresses? What are they like? Do you guys have any special nicknames for each other? I'm just one of those guys who wants to know these things. Oh, my God. And one of the things that came up was that when her marriage was ending, I guess her brother said, well, you could just move in with our grandmother and take care of her. You'll have a place to live. And that was not something she wanted to do. So now he's writing it in a letter. And it could possibly have come from Lisa. So again, even though her mother-in-law is saying, no, this call was very weird and I didn't file these papers and she was clearly distressed, they're saying, well, we've received letters that say she's fine and she's actually saying in these letters, I don't want to do what my family wants me to do. I want to build a different life for my child. Tell Carl I'll be in touch. And also new details like, tell Kathy that I'll come back from my car or I've got somebody who's going to get it or something like that. So it was all like, familiar enough that they seemed possibly realistic, except for to Lisa's mother, who knew that Lisa could not type a damn word. She could not type. She had never been to a typing class. She did not know how to type. And furthermore, even in her handwriting, Lisa was not a great speller. She wasn't somebody that would write this very intelligent, very clear, well-worded, precise letter in perfect typewriting. Yep. So her mother said, this isn't my daughter. But again, they said, she's 19. She's allowed to leave and run her family however she wants. So she's gone. But there was someone, Andy, in law enforcement, who was not buying this. And that was parole officer Steve Hames. Well, sadly, Steve was interviewing the birthright director on the very same day that Lisa and Tiffany were checked out of the roadway in. For what reason? Because For of this John? reason. So he was already hot on the trail of trying to figure out what John was up to and why was he trying to get a pregnant woman or young mother and her child because he didn't know, he didn't understand. So he had to go and interview the birth rate director to be like, give me all the details exactly. What did he say to you? Did he give you any materials? What alarmed him the most was that John was considered a nonviolent con man. So he's into scams that make him money. And to their knowledge, nothing else. He's always in it just for profit. So a con man would have nothing to gain from helping a young mother and her baby. So what the fuck is he doing? What is he gaining? He became so frightened in the situation that he contacted the FBI. And he said, I would love to know if you are investigating any baby selling rings or anything that's going on in the black market in the Kansas City or surrounding areas because we have a con man who recently was making overtures and was turned down, thankfully, by two organizations looking for young mothers and babies, specifically white ones. So 
is there any like trafficking, baby selling, anything going on that I should know about? And the FBI said, no, we have nothing on the radar for anywhere in the area, which I feel like they would if they were. They would be looking into it. It seems like Steve had already contacted John and he had been the day that he checked them out of the hotel. He was also with his family that evening and or with other people who had seen him. So it's not like it could have he couldn't have gone that far with them is the point. So the FBI is saying, we've got a dead end, but we are with you. We'll keep an eye on him. He's on their radar now as far as what could have possibly happened. He is now at this point, Steve and the FBI have found out about what's going on with Lisa and Tiffany Stassi and that they just kind of up and disappeared. So he's now really worried because he found out about it through birthright. But then it wasn't until three weeks later that he actually got all the way to what had happened. Yep. And so he's contacting the FBI. He's digging himself. He's getting into law enforcement. And he finds out that only a few months earlier, Paula Godfrey had gone missing in connection to Equi2 and John Robinson. And he knows they're connected. He doesn't know where they are. No bodies are found. These women and this baby seemingly just evaporated. There's no witnesses. There's nothing. But he knows that John Robinson did something. And he would spend the next decades, two decades of his life, proving it. Wow. So they're trying to prove what's going on. And they're getting nowhere. And he's completely like psychopathic gaslighter. I don't know what you're talking about. I gave Paul an opportunity. I guess she didn't follow through. He changed his story with Lisa and Tiffany that he had been with her. He had checked her out. And then, no, she had just left from the hotel. He gets an attorney and he's like not talking to them now. But they can't bring him up on charges because they don't have any hard evidence. Everything's circumstantial. So they start surveilling him and they find out that he very likely has this brothel going that he is sexually trafficking people, it would seem. And that's obviously a violation of his probation. Yeah. It's not even parole. Sorry, this is his probation officer. I, I think I said parole officer earlier. But this is his probation officer. He's still on probation. So they find this young woman who met him at a McDonald's. And this is another teenager. And she was looking for work. She was having a hard time. And essentially, her name was Teresa Williams. He managed to tell her he was going to offer her the world again and get her into this apartment. And he did provide her with a place to stay and then immediately forced her into sex work. So they had an idea of what might be going on at this point just because they're kind of just watching him really. Yeah. Two months into this relationship with Teresa, they see that he is making plans to take some of her stuff and move it into a storage unit. And they realize at this point that her life is very likely in danger. So they ended up pulling her out, basically taking her out of the situation, saying we've been surveilling the situation and you need to be saved from this guy and tell us what's actually going on. And so they said to her, you're in a dangerous situation. And she's like, I know. But he had told her that they were going to the Bahamas, that they were going on a trip, and that he was just going to put her stuff in storage and everything was going to be okay. 
But she said that she had been put into some very sketchy situations with him, including one time where he blindfolded her and sent her in a limousine. And she, guys, this is a trigger warning. We're going to talk a lot about sexual assault, violent sexual assault in this occasion. And apparently a man who was like higher up in the community and seemingly wealthy got in and performed unnatural acts on her, she said. And things it sounded like were really beyond the pale. And this was a young woman who'd been subjected to S&M type things before. So this is like on a whole nother level. Yeah. And when she got back home, when the limo took her back home, he was there and he was pissed off with her because she didn't perform the way he wanted her to perform. And she told the police that he then held a gun to her head and threatened her. And then he had also raped her essentially with the gun, with the loaded gun. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they don't have anything that would lead them directly to the murders or the kidnappings of these other young women, but they have this. So they say this is assault. This is criminal assault. This is absolutely a violation of your probation. And they arrest John. But the FBI and even the judge on this case agreed that Teresa should not testify. I guess as part of testifying, she would have to give her address. And they felt that her life was in danger. And so the judge agreed that it could be like a red affidavit, essentially. Okay. Instead of Teresa being in court. And he was sent to prison. However, before he really spent any time, I think he was just in the local jail because he never actually got to prison. They managed to file an appeal based on the fact that this violated John's constitutional right to face his accuser in a court of law. And they won. Uh... He's free. They essentially couldn't prove anything then if it was the, the decision was reversed. So now they're looking into him for all of the scams and all of the financial stuff and trying to get him some other way because the most important thing is getting this guy off the street. Well, unfortunately, it did not happen soon enough for one young woman, 27-year-old Korean-American Catherine Clampett. Catherine had been adopted as a child and grew up in Texas, and she had struggled to find her path. This is a seemingly similar situation for many of the women that John preys upon, of course. She had gotten in kind of deep with some drugs and alcohol, according to her family, and she had had a young son. So she, at the time that John preyed upon her, had a one-year-old son who was at home with her parents in Texas. And she had been sent essentially to her brother's house who lived in Kansas City to kind of like get on the straight and narrow, clean herself up, get a good job. And then at the time when her family and she felt like she could be a responsible mom, she'd be reunited with her young son. So Catherine felt very determined to get her life together for that reason. And within days of arriving in Kansas City, she was ecstatic to get a job, to get a great position as an administrative assistant at what company do you think, Andy? Bullshitcorp.com. Yes. Equi2. Bullshitcorp2. 
And within two months of Catherine beginning her new job, she too had disappeared. But they're watching her, right? So I don't know what kind of surveillance or how, what was going on, because I know that they were trying to nail him for other things, but somehow this one fell through, yeah. Yep, fell through the cracks, because by the time Catherine was officially reported missing, John was actually in prison. By the time, like, I think that she had moved out of her brother's house because she was supposed to be traveling with her boss. Wow. Nobody had been concerned at the beginning because, of course, they're also getting letters that she's fine, she's traveling with her boss, things are doing well. Nobody even reported her missing until she was in prison because then who can't write letters when he's in prison? And then she gets reported missing. So she could have disappeared the day he hired her. Yeah, that's wild how much time the letters would buy him. Oh, yeah. So now he's actually in prison. He's in a state pen for the first time ever, but not for murder, sadly, for fraud. So the authorities had caught up to some of his goings-ons in the fraudulent businesses, and they just figured that this was enough of a probation violation and enough that he could be put away for a few years while they looked for more evidence. Yeah, it's good to just have him locked up. Yes, this is probably saving countless lives in the years that he was locked up. He was in prison in both Kansas and Missouri from 1987 through 1993. In early 1992, he began to serve his Missouri sentence because he started in Kansas and then they transferred him to Missouri because he had done the crimes in both of these states. In a medium security prison where he ended up being treated for a stroke by Dr. William Bonner. Now, I guess in the Kansas prison, they had been concerned about him and the doctor there was kind of taken in by him, like saying that, oh, he's on death's door. He had a stroke. He's an older man who needs to be let out for compassionate release. And they were like, yeah, no, we're sending you to finish your Missouri sentence. And when he arrived in Missouri, Dr. Bonner did not think that he was necessarily on death's door, but this is how he did describe him. He said that he remembered Robinson as a businessman type con artist who was well-spoken grammatically and far more intelligent than the standard inmate. He was easy to talk to and more personable, but there were so many inmates that went through my office during the five years that I was there that he didn't really stand out or make a big impression. Huh. Well, unfortunately for Dr. Bonner, he did make a big impression upon Dr. Bonner's wife, Beverly. Stop it. Yep. She was the prison librarian, and it turns out that they knew each other from previously working at Mobile Oil. Oh, my God. So she remembered him, and he pretty much convinced her that it was all lies, that he had not committed fraud. It was just some people that had a vendetta against him. And that he was just this misunderstood genius who was just trying to be an entrepreneur. And she had been an executive at Mobile. So she's like, I get it. Business is rough. They ended up bonding. So Beverly had been an executive at Mobile. She had had two sons with her first husband, whom she had divorced in 1981. And then she had met and married Dr. Bonner in 1987. So, yeah, this is a relatively new relationship. Only five years later, after marrying Dr. Bonner, she started a passionate 
love affair behind bars with a man who was absolutely already actually a serial killer. And she just thought he was a misunderstood man who had been railroaded. She confided in John that she had grown bored in her marriage. She was not particularly challenged by being a prison librarian. She wanted to get back into business. She wanted to do more with her life. And John convinced her, while he's still in prison, that he's going to get out soon and that they should, as a team, given that she has such incredible business acumen, resurrect his hydro grow company stop stop from the ground yes the hydroponic company he's saying that you know maybe it was ahead of its time people really now are just now really getting into organic and homegrown this is really the time i was just ahead of my time and she agreed with him so they make a plan that she's gonna leave her husband he's gonna get out of prison And they are going to run this business together, get married, be happily ever after. So John was released in spring of 1993. He was now 49 years old. And sometime around this time, maybe before or after, I'm not entirely sure, she admitted to her husband that she was unhappy and that she had engaged in an extramarital affair. So it was really over. She requested a divorce and Dr. Bonner agreed. But but he would not find out who the other man was for a very, very long time. And where's Nancy Joe in this? Nancy Joe is not going anywhere. She's been standing by your man. This poor woman lost her standing in the community. She lost her pride. She lost her house because of all of his legal wranglings and the fact that she couldn't pay their mortgage. So she and I believe maybe their eldest two kids were already out of the house at this point because they had them so young. But I think she and the younger kids had to move into a mobile home and she became the manager of a mobile home park, I'm sure, just to keep a roof over their head. And Nancy's there waiting for him to get out. And she wrote letters to the prison board trying to get him out on compassionate release back when he was saying, like, I had a stroke and I need to get out. She visited him. She was there for him. And I don't know what he told her about Nancy, whether he was like, I got to get out so I can divorce her or what the situation was. I believe Beverly knew about her, but she was obviously taken in by whatever he was saying about the end of their relationship or that it was over, but all but in paper. In any case, her and Dr. Bonner ended up finalizing their divorce in early 1993 as well. And he agreed to pay her $18,000 and I believe also $1,000 a month in alimony. So the $18,000 was, um, a split up of their property, essentially. And then I think the $1,000 a month was the alimony. She forwarded her alimony checks to a P.O. box and then set out to begin her new exciting life. There were papers later found that show that she was, I think, in the incorporated papers of a business listed as a co-owner in this hydroponic company. So I don't know if he really thought he was going to leave his wife and resurrect Hydro Grow with Beverly and something went wrong, or he never imagined it was actually going to get that far and was just going along the motions to convince her that he was. But what we do know is that it seems like Beverly was installed in an apartment that he had leased, and soon friends were receiving typewritten letters and postcards mailed from around the world. 
in late fall of that same year, the same year she left her husband, got her divorce settlement, and he got out of prison, he also went to a storage unit and told the person he was getting the storage unit from that he was storing his sister Beverly's things because she was traveling in Australia. And when he would go to visit the storage unit, and he had some other units at the same place, they would say, well, how's your sister? Is she coming back anytime soon? And he said, I don't think so. She really likes it. I think she's going to stay there for good. Down under. Down under. So, well, people are receiving these letters, and this is not out of character, let's say, for Beverly to want to embark on this new exciting life. And some of these were typewritten letters. They seem from an educated person like Beverly. One thing that everyone thought was very strange was that she did not attend the funeral of her eldest son when he passed away. Uh, And her ex-husband, Dr. Bonner, did because obviously he had been a part of those kids' lives. And he was a little alarmed. However, she kept cashing his alimony checks every month, so he knew she must be okay. This is where we are. John is out. He is living again now with Nancy. He's in the mobile home park. I believe at this point their kids were grown. I think he was actually a grandfather. He is getting grandfatherly. He is very excited about the brand new world he is in after five or six years in federal prisons in two states. He is excited about getting out because in the time that John has been away, the internet has absolutely exploded into the mainstream. And being the industrious little beaver that he is, he had taken a computing masterclass while in prison and he knew all of the possibilities that the internet held for him. It would become his hunting ground. He would begin to explore BDSM chat rooms where he would be known as what else other than the capital S slave master. The anonymity and lawlessness of the early internet would basically help fuse John's identities as both a con man and a dangerous sadist serial killer, essentially. Now he had the ability to basically fuse those two things and seek out his perverse and fatal pleasures at the same time that he specifically targeted victims in which he could gain financial benefit from. Yep. It was a very dangerous combination. And that is why John Edward Robinson is actually known as the internet's first serial killer. Yeah, he took all the evil that there was to gain from it. John Douglas particularly talks about this at length in ways that I could not, there was like full chapters I had to skip because he gets into the child pornography bit of it. And I have to tell you that that is not John Edward Robinson's bag. So thankfully we will not be talking about that at all, but essentially just the evils of the internet and how law enforcement was not prepared to keep up with what sick criminals were able to do on the internet immediately. Yeah. On that extremely depressing note is where we end our part one, our first ever part one. And thankfully it is a part one because this was already a very long episode and we have not even begun to scratch the surface. So I am looking forward to bringing you guys part two next week. In conclusion, I think we can say that maybe a part one, part two isn't so bad. And also 
Maybe it's safe to say that if you meet someone at McDonald's or any other random restaurant and they offer you somewhere to live right out the gate, like maybe don't go. No, don't go. Oh, and gosh, and hopefully we've all gotten smarter about dealing with people on the internet. So trust yes. your gut so you don't get hoodwinked in a BDSM chat room. Bye. 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 